Good morning. This is Kevin Payne, pastor at First Baptist Church in Independence, Missouri. Welcome to our podcast. What you're about to hear is a portion of our worship services that began last Sunday morning at 1030. Every week we gather and sing praises to the living God and hear teachings from His Word found in Scripture. We hope you enjoy the message. If you'd like to hear more, there are more here on the podcast, or you could come and worship with us. Our Bible studies begin at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and our worship begins at 10.30. We're located in Independence, Missouri, 500 Westerman Road. Why don't you come and worship with us? Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you this morning for your presence. The world is crazy, we're scared and afraid and all those things. One thing never changes, and that is you and Jesus. Thank you, Father, for being our rock, for giving us something that withstands the test of time and virus and war. Help us to trust in you, Father. Give us the gift of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I am weak, but thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from
Bibles with me this morning, if you would. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and we'll look at several passages of Scripture today. We'll start at Mark, chapter 1, continuing in our series, A Day in the Life, looking at events in the life of Jesus. Join me, please, as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your presence. Again, we thank you for never changing for always hearing our prayers, for always being with us, for always extending a word that encourages and gives us hope. Thank you. We thank you for this life that we have in Jesus. Not only are things better now, we know that even in death there is peace and hope and life. Father, we pray a special prayer for our nation You know the details about the coronavirus. You know the past and the future. Help us, Father. Give us strength and encouragement. We provide for healing. Be with researchers and doctors as they treat the sick, as they work on vaccines and medications. We pray that our leaders would be able to marshal the forces to fight this epidemic. We pray for those families that have lost loved ones. Give them comfort. For those that are ill, heal them. We know that life goes on in so many ways. Wars continue, as does crime, births, and families. Help us, Father. Speak to us now from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've asked another one of our fine musicians, Brian Bates, to play some special pieces. And these are some of the things I heard when I grew up. Brian? Those are scales. They sound simple. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. We all can sing that. The reason I had him play that is because I walked in the door of my house growing up. Every day my mom practiced scales. She was a piano teacher forever, and you know that. And she practiced scales endlessly. I used to think she was just a nutty old lady. And then as I got older, I realized that she wasn't a nutty old lady, that she was an accomplished musician keeping those skills that she had learned decades before 
Now I understand, you know, my mom struggled with some pretty significant mental illness for the last 50 years of her life. And I realize now that probably scales gave her a sense of constancy in life. Scales always sound the same. I mean, they're different, but when you play a scale correctly, it's always the same. And the hand and fingerings are always exactly the same. And they are the foundation for good musicianship. And they're mechanical and methodical and mathematical. And uh, they're very satisfying to play when you learn them. Even on the guitar, I still do my scales just because there's some satisfaction. There's not much to listen to, obviously. But there is some satisfaction in a scale played well. It's part of the foundation that enables you to play something better later. Like I said, my mom was a piano teacher forever. When she was four, she was at church, and she pulled out a hymnal, and, and that was her manner. They went, her mom drug her to church along with all the other kids on the farm. Her dad was ill. He died when she was five. And she remembered looking at the hymnal, and she couldn't read yet, and she could sing a little bit, and she couldn't read music, but she said, and she told me this over and over, that there was something special about that music. And she knew then, when she was four, that when she grew up, she wanted to be a pianist, and she wanted to play the piano in church. She said that to her mom, and I remember this was 1932, dad was dead her dad was dead and they were on a farm outside of Bolivar, Missouri literally one of those impoverished families that were so common back in the day she was in the manner of raising her 100 chickens every spring that was mom's way of getting the kids off the street her grandma's way and her mom's way and they would buy 100 chickens and the kids would take care of 100 chickens and some of you grew up doing things like that and Somehow, Grandma Jackson, my mama's mama, managed to scrape together enough money to buy an old piano, drug it to the house. Everybody thought she was silly because no one could play, but my grandma knew that Rachel wanted to play. So somehow, she scraped the money together for a piano and then piano lessons. So at age four, four and a half, she started taking piano lessons, and she learned significantly scales at first. She said as soon as she began to play and could get those notes right, she knew that that was her life's position. That's what she wanted to do. So she learned those scales, took lessons for years, took lessons up into her 20s, started playing the church piano for hymns when she was 11. Played church piano, hymns, concert chorales, and all those other things, became quite an accomplished pianist until she was in her 70s. She quit playing because at the church where she played, First Baptist Church in Excelsior, she played piano and organ, not the same time, but on the same days, obviously. And she was the pianist slash organist. So, like here, there was a piano on one side, organ on the other. And she had to wear soft slippers because she had to run from one instrument to the other. Now, my mom was a prissy little thing, good Baptist woman. So she didn't want anybody to see her running. So she would run like this. She would run walk very quietly and stately as she did walk and soon she got through the doorway behind she ran around the building got her composure and walked out very nice and sat down and played the other instrument did that all of her life taught piano lessons till all the kids were sick of them obviously by the time my mom was in her 60s 
She could play anything. She was a particularly gifted sight reader. Now, what that means is you don't necessarily need to practice. You just sit down and play anything. And, and she was gifted in that. And because of their location in Excelsior Springs, there were a lot of musicians from William Jewell that come to our church. And they always marvel that this church lady's pianist abilities. She could just play literally anything perfect the first time she saw it. Of course, they knew that the only reason that that old woman could play like this is because when she was four, she started doing the preparations for that career. If you want to do something good, you don't just get up and do it, do you? Chris can cut wood like nobody's business. Lee has his fingers intact still. Wasn't an accomplished carpenter when he first got his first saw, but is now. There are many boards in our church, and you may not know this, but he's done the craft work on some of those. Didn't become a great craftsman the first day he picked up a saw. Took years. You develop skills. You gain knowledge. There are preparations. You purchase things. You learn things. You develop skills. Whether you're a football player, a musician, a soldier, doesn't matter. To do good, difficult things, you have to prepare. If they're important, it takes preparation. And it's worthy of preparation, isn't it? Today we're going to read a story in the life of Jesus that is the culmination of God's preparations for us. Follow along with me if you would. Mark chapter 1, I'll read the first 11 verses. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven. Thou art my beloved son. In thee I am well pleased. Preparations. The baptism of Jesus was really a simple act. Just like a baptism here. Jesus walked up to John, his cousin. John, no. And Jesus, yes. They had this discussion. And Jesus was baptized. And in that moment when Jesus came out of the water, we have this image of the Holy Spirit coming in as a dove. And, and they heard this voice, and they recognized it was the voice of God. Behold my son, in whom I am well pleased. And that was the end of God's preparations for salvation. You see, God had been working for centuries. And Jesus' baptism finalized God's preparations to save us all. So today we're going to talk about some of those preparations and how when we look at a day in the life of Jesus, we see not just one event, 
It is that. But it's more than that, particularly when we look at his baptism. This is the culmination of God working for centuries, millennia, to bring things together. We often focus on the work of Jesus on the cross, his salvation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension into heaven, the salvation we have because of faith in him. And those are all important, and we should focus on those. That's the point of all of this. But we need to remember, by the time Jesus came, God had been working for millennia to bring salvation about. The author of Hebrews said it like this, in the fullness of times, he used that phrase, in the fullness of times, God sent his son. When everything was ready, when it was just the right time, any earlier it wouldn't have been right, any later it would have missed the opportunity, but at that point in history, God had so crafted humanity's history that everything was prepared. It's amazing when you read some historical analysis of the timing of Jesus. You see that historically, if Jesus would have been born a couple of generations before, there, have been, there were historical things that wouldn't have been in place. And if he had been born two or three hundred years later, some of those things would have been passed. But in that moment, Jesus could come and bring a message that would reach the entire world. God knew what it was doing. We're going to look at some of God's preparations for salvation. And I'm going to ask that you uh, please pick up your Bibles and turn to these passages with me. And I know that you're worried about, does Walmart have any toilet paper or anything like that? So I'm going to try to get you out of here on time today. And Walmart doesn't have toilet paper, by the way, so don't worry about it. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. The first thing that God did... After his thoughts and creative powers, Genesis chapter 3. I've read this before. This is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. A little bit of background, creation, Adam and Eve, and the fall. And God confronts them all, talking to Satan in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, we don't know how long this was before Jesus. Thousands of years. Some say 6,000. Some say 10. I don't know. doesn't really matter, does it? At creation, Adam and Eve sinned. We know that. They fell. Punishment came. They were banished from the garden. And one of the punishments given to Satan himself was this prediction that there will be one that comes, seed of a woman, and you will bruise his heel. You will wound him, but he will crush your head. You will die. There was the prophecy there that Satan's great powers would be crushed. Crucifixion and resurrection. Before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this was in place. Now, Moses recorded this, you know that, but this was a long time before Moses. So, at the beginning of humanity, there was this prophecy. God was already working to bring about Jesus, crucifixion, resurrection, and oh yeah, baptism. See, God was working. Now, turn over, if you would, to your New Testament, to the book of Galatians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. 
right after Corinthians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Hear what Paul has to say about the Old Testament. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. So when we look at the thousand-year period of Moses up to the place of Jesus, about 1,300 years actually, that was a time where God used the Old Testament law to tutor humanity, to get them to think in a different way. You know this. It takes a long time for us to change our habits. You know, even our president had trouble the other day. You watched this. He told us not to shake hands, and then what did he do? He shook hands with everybody he met on film, and everybody went crazy. And then at the next thing, he said, well, it's just, she was, he was asked, why do you keep shaking hands? He goes, well, it's just a habit. I don't even think about it. People put their hands out, and I shake them. You have to consciously make an effort to change. And sometimes it takes generations. God knew that for humanity to be ready for Jesus, that he had to teach humanity how to think in terms of sacrifice and sin and holiness. So the law, and you read the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings, all those things were meant... Not to save humanity because they couldn't. Remember, Paul taught us that. The law couldn't save. But what it did do is teach us. If you measure yourself against a perfect standard, you will fail. You're a sinner. And he taught us that there's nothing you can do. You can follow all the rules, and you, you can't follow all the rules. You're imperfect. See, he taught humanity for 1,300 years that you need more than you can do yourself. The law was a tutor. God prepared for us. Now, if you would, turn back to Isaiah chapter 53. Back in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. You know, it's kind of hard to find. I'll give you some time. Isaiah chapter 53. One of those prophetic passages where the prophet spoke of a coming Savior. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. and By his scourging we are healed. So the prophet said that at some point there's going to be a servant of God and he's going to suffer miserably and God will use him to save his people. Now the Hebrew people, by the time Jesus came along, had misinterpreted this passage and they thought they were the suffering servant. So the Hebrew people thought that we are the suffering servant and our suffering is going to save humanity. And of course they were wrong. Their suffering was miserable to be sure, but it wasn't going to save anyone they couldn't have understood the message at the time. When Jesus came along, he understood that the suffering servant was him. Remember, I talked last week about Jesus' time in the temple and how sometimes he would read Isaiah 53 and he understood, that's me. You see, those are preparations because this passage was written about 700 years before Jesus. No one had ever interpreted it to a singular leader 
Surely Messiah wouldn't suffer, and yet Jesus understood. And then Paul explained it later, of course. So Jesus was a product of God's prophecies. Now, back to chapter 1 of Mark, if you would. Mark chapter 1, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. And then verses 7 and 8 again. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was part of God's preparations. Baptizing, just calling people to repentance. And Jesus knew that at that time, it was time for him to enter into his ministry. Now remember, Jesus was about 30 at this time. We don't know exactly when. But he was about 30 years old. He was a man of faith, worked as a carpenter, studied scripture, went to synagogue, made that yearly trip to temple. But he was normal. He just worked and lived his life, a person of faith. But when John was baptizing, it clicked with Jesus. God called him, and now is the time. And at that time, at this baptism, God's preparations are over. It was time to get the work. God had been working, of course, for centuries, but now was time for the work to, to approach. So Jesus and his baptism and all those kinds of things, it's not just the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It was the finalization of God's preparations. So when Jesus stepped forward to John and told him, it's time to baptize me, God was saying, fine, it's time. In the fullness of time, Jesus came. And this is important because when we look at Jesus' baptism, not only do we see God's preparations completed, Jesus in his actions taught us how to come to God. You know, sometimes we need pictures. I was reading the other day, and it's kind of a discouraging article, and the scholar was saying, he's one of those smart guys with more, more time than he should have had, but he was making the observation about humanity. He said, because of our reliance upon video, that we're losing the ability to think, a video or a picture will give us an image and an immediate understanding of a situation, and it may not be correct, but it's a powerful image, and so we go with it, and we never even consider to think about it. Images are powerful. Jesus did this baptism, not just as an act of faith, yes, but also as an image for us. He showed us, this is how you follow God. Sometimes we need pictures. You know this old guy, Jimmy Carter, president from way back, over 40 years ago. Good guy. He had fallen down, you remember the story, still working on houses for Habitat for Humanity. One other picture. If we can get that other picture, he and his wife. I'm sure that there are some young bucks falling behind going, oh my gosh, here they go again, they're just slow. Because that's what young people say about us, isn't it? We're slow, and we are. Jimmy Carter understood the value of an image. Not only did he get his hands dirty and start building houses, and joined this new group, Habitat for Humanity. When Jimmy Carter started working with the Habitat, it wasn't really an international phenomenon as it is now. It was just a localized ministry. 
They'd built a few houses. But when President Jimmy Carter got involved, he understood that he had the capacity as leader to make it a big deal, and he did. I went through and looked at the pictures of all the, the celebrities that had been involved in Habitat for Humanity over the decades. All of them. Seriously. Every celebrity has been there on at least one house build. Some of them many. Several presidents, Clinton and Bush too. Not because Jimmy harassed them or badgered them, but because he demonstrated an example of servant leadership. Sometimes we need a picture. Jesus understood that. His baptism was a picture. He could have said all the right things, and he eventually did, but he said with his actions, this is how you follow God. And Jesus said it like this, the kingdom of heaven is in the hearts of men. And then another time he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he talked about the kingdom of heaven, he was talking about your life of salvation lived in obedience and submission to God. It wasn't necessarily a place when I die, I'm going to go to the kingdom of heaven. That wasn't really what he was talking about. Talking about a life of faith. Jesus demonstrated this is how you do it. So on screen are some ideas of how we can get into God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. First of all, repent of your sin. When Jesus went to John the Baptist for baptism... John wasn't preaching salvation through Jesus. You understand that, right? Jesus hadn't come on the scene yet as Messiah. There was no crucifixion or resurrection. None of this has happened yet. John was simply calling people to repentance. An old word, not religious at all, which meant turn. Turn toward or turn away. The idea was, for John the Baptist, turn from sin and turn towards God. Now, Jesus had never sinned. But in this act of baptism he showed that repentance a turning towards God was essential you have to make a conscious decision you can't just be a nice person and all of a sudden you're a Christian because you're a nice guy doesn't work that way there must be a conscious choice to follow Jesus as Savior and most of you have made that decision your mom and daddy couldn't do it for you it can't be imposed upon you I mean they can People can make you say the words. They can hold you under the water till you're blue in the face and all those kinds of things. Your spouse can drag you to church. But ultimately, your salvation and relationship with God is only a result of your decision to follow Jesus, of repentance. Jesus did that. He turned towards God in this act of baptism. And that's one of our examples. An entrance into the kingdom is a public profession. Now, Jesus didn't have to do this in public. He could have just had a, a private thing with John the Baptist. His cousin would have done that. But Jesus knew people needed to see what he was doing. If he was going to start a movement, people had to see. So he chose a very public place. John the Baptist was wildly popular. Huge crowds. Everybody was there. And Jesus, the carpenter, came down, submitted to baptism, turned towards God, and made sure everybody understood what, understood what he was doing. And there in front of everybody, he came out of the water, and the Holy Spirit appeared, and God spoke. It was public. There's nothing private about your faith. I, I say that. What you have with Jesus is private. It's your business. But it's not your business. 
because God wants everybody to understand it. So even though it's a personal thing, it's between you and God, God wants you to live out that personal thing in front of everybody else. So he calls you not only to follow him in faith with that decision, but he calls you to follow him in baptism. So we baptize in front of God and everybody. It's what we do. It's what God calls us to do. So people can see. Have you been baptized? Well, yes, I have. Why? Why would you do such a weird thing? And there's your chance. People need to see. The interesting thing about baptism is not only does it help non-Christians understand a little bit because there's some great symbolism in baptism, it encourages Christians, doesn't it? We need to see people's conversions. And we see that in baptism. Being public is, is one of the things that God wants. One other thing, receive the Holy Spirit. You can't really see when people receive the Spirit. But the understanding was when the Holy Spirit appeared and God spoke, that there was a connection between this profession of faith, public statement, and Holy Spirit. Now we know that technically, the moment you receive Jesus as Savior, the Holy Spirit comes within you. So if you, if you make a decision to follow Jesus and get killed on the way home from church and don't get to get baptized, you still have the Holy Spirit, you're still saved. You know, none of those things really change. But it's just an understanding, and Jesus wanted us to have this, that this idea of repentance and baptism was part and parcel of this receiving the Holy Spirit. You can't really separate them. Some people try, but you can't. This is part of being part of the kingdom of God. God calls you, and as soon as you respond, there's a whole gamut of experiences that come with it. It's like getting married. The moment you say, I do, and the preacher says, kiss your bride, everything changes, doesn't it? You don't even realize it changes. Remember that? You don't even realize what's going to happen. None of us do. And then everything changes, and we grow into that. But it all happens at that moment. Same thing with salvation. When you receive Jesus as Savior, most of us just know we're getting saved, and we're not going to go to hell. We may not understand much more. And that's okay. God continues to work and teach us. Baptism is one of those things, and it begins to teach you that not only are you to follow Jesus, but God wants you to follow Jesus in front of people. That's one of the values of a public baptism. It teaches you the value of a public profession. Very important. Jesus' baptism was an act of faith. It was obedience to God. But it was also an action determined to show us the ways of faith. There's a passage of scripture. Read this with me if you would. The righteousness based on faith speaks thus. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Paul wrote that to explain, and he wrote this many years after Jesus' baptism. Salvation is this choice you receive Christ as Savior. You repent of your sin. You turn towards God. And then you're baptized. And, and you begin this life of faith. I remember, uh, you know, I didn't think much about baptism when I was a kid. But when I went to preacher school, I remember one of the professors said one day, and I happened to be awake that day. 
He said, baptism is the first act of obedience for the Christian. It's the first thing God wants you to do. Nothing's changed. God wants to be baptized, not because there's anything holy about the water, but because it is an act of obedience. It is a way of expressing your faith to others. And it, in some way, solidifies your decision. Nate's going to come and lead us in a closing hymn of invitation and commitment. Let me encourage you. Make those decisions to follow Jesus, follow in baptism. When baptism comes up in conversation, talk about it. Tell your kids and grandkids about your baptism if you remember it. When you watch that old show, when you hear that song that Michelle led us to sing earlier today, talk about baptism with those that you talk to. It's an essential part of salvation. It is God's way of us telling the story. Would you stand with me as Nate leads us? Pray with me. Thank you for the message you delivered to us today, Father. Open our hearts so that we may put it to use in our daily life and share it with others. Look over those who are sick and those who are caring for the sick and keep us safe till we can come back together again. In Jesus' name, amen.